This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 24, 2016. This is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 403 of Defender Radio. The status of wolves is a contentious subject these days. Between myths and fact, depredation and trophic cascades, it seems that every opinion is equally right and wrong. It only follows that when it comes to making policy about wolves, that paradox would follow. A perfect example of this comes from Ontario, where the newly identified Algonquin wolf was given threatened status over summer. The genetically unique subspecies of wolf already received protection in Algonquin Provincial Park. But due to the Algonquin wolf status, a review of additional protections across the province was in order. On the table for review was a plan to prohibit trapping and hunting in various management units of all wolves, including the non-threatened gray wolf and coyotes, which can be so morphologically like the Algonquin wolf, only DNA can differentiate the species. Of course, there were three primary sides to this combative review process. I'd call them the good, the bad, and the ugly, but there's the possibility that some could construe that as a bias. Instead, we'll call them the wildlife conservationists, the government making the policy, and the lobby groups that see any attempt to change wildlife policy as a direct assault on the very fabric of society and reality. Ultimately, no one was really happy with the government's decision, including Hannah Barron, a researcher who recently joined Defender Radio. Hannah is the Director of Wildlife Conservation Campaigns at Earthroots, and we connected to talk Algonquin wolves, science-based conservation, and the failings of poor policy. So the Algonquin wolf, I think, is where we need to start this conversation. Um, it, it, it's relatively new, this designation, and a lot of things happened in very quick succession following the decision that there was an Algonquin wolf and that it was considered threatened. So could you start by maybe walking us through where this Algonquin wolf sort of appeared from both politically and taxonomically, um, and then we'll sort of get into what happened next. Sure, yeah. So the research that supported um, the conclusion that the Algonquin wolf is a unique wolf species actually started sort of in the 60s or 70s, just because they could tell that the wolves around Algonquin Park looked different. They were sort of intermediate in size between coyotes from out west and the gray wolves in northern Ontario and the rest of Canada. So they appeared different, but it wasn't until around 2000 that genetic research really pointed out that uh, they were in fact a unique species. So that took about a decade um, of continuous genetic research uh, in order for them to sort of be more sure that this was in fact a unique wolf. Um, and subsequently they, they realized that um, they had to reassess that animal because previously we thought they were a subspecies of the gray wolf. Uh, and the, in, in Canada and in Ontario, they were listed as special concern subspecies. Uh, and so when this new research turn, turns out that they're very different, they decided, okay, we're going to reassess them. Um, as a unique species and also determine whether their threat of extinction has changed. Uh, and so that has a little bit to do with the species designation um, because if, if it's a unique species and there's, say, less than 500 animals, it's probably more of a problem than if it was just a subspecies. Um, but either way, we did know that they, they were different for some time um, and it was really just a very recent listing as the unique species 
Um, in Canada right now, they're they're listed as uh, eastern wolves, and in Ontario, they're listed as Algonquin wolves, but they're the same animals. Um, and really what it comes down to is uh, what, that they're listed as threatened now in Ontario. So we, we have assessed them... Um, like our scientists have decided that they they are so different and so rare that they are threatened with extinction. And right now that assessment is still ongoing in, in Canada at the federal level, uh, but they are supposedly going to match that threatened listing. I guess to, I, I kind of have to immediately play devil's advocate, which can be fun, but um, something that will come up and I'm sure has come up already is the discussion of uh, sort of why does it matter? What What is the value of having identified this other wolf? Aren't there already wolves in Ontario? Um, why is this one special? Why does it matter that its DNA is a little different? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. The, it's interesting to have the conversation about the value of so-called pure unique species versus hybrids um, and, and sort of what that means in the real world. But in terms of biodiversity, like if we're looking at the ecology of these animals, they are different, they behave differently, and they eat somewhat different things than, say, the smaller coyote and the bigger gray wolf. So just like they're intermediary in size, they're also an intermediary in their prey choices. So they can prey on moose and and big ungulates like that, but they seem to specialize on deer, whereas the gray wolves in the north specialize on moose and and larger animals. Um, And the coyotes down south, they they can take deer, but it's rare, and they, they tend to focus on much smaller prey. Uh, so in terms of Ontario and where we stand, having these animals in the middle bridging the gap sort of between the, the northern gray wolf population and the southern coyote population, um, there's gene flow. First of all, yeah, they're intermediaries of gene flow so that their diversity, like that hybrid diversity that we see sort of is able to move back and forth across the latitude of Ontario, which is great for adapting to things like climate change, which we are not sure how that's going to affect ecosystems, especially top predators, and also just dealing with um, moving prey populations that come with climate change. So if deer are moving further north, and this is a prey specialist uh, for deer, then that's going to have an effect on which animals are situated where. And what we want to make sure in the end is that everywhere in in Ontario's various ecosystems, that there's an intact predator-prey population where we have these apex or top predators in place. And so if they can specialize in sort of the central Ontario belt, then that's what their job is and that's what they're best situated to do. All right, and I don't think there's any doubt of the importance of the predator-prey relationship anymore in uh, biology or in ecology. No. Um, you know. no, we understand that it has such far-reaching impacts going all the way down to the bottom of the food chain. So so that part we do know and we have consensus on. All right, now there's, there's two, there have been two decisions this year regarding wolves um, and coyotes, although primarily focused on wolves in Ontario. The first one was earlier this year, and it had to do specifically with moose in fact um and it was a proposal that was up big picture more or less was going to make it easier to hunt and kill wolves and coyotes with the alleged purpose being supporting uh moose populations which are i think it's deer ticks that are giving them a hard time or is it is it another uh uh, another insect bug uh, definitely deer ticks are a, a major source of, uh, for, of death for moose. It's, they're, they're having a hard time, especially we haven't had very cold winters in a row. And so the, the ticks sort of move in these cycles. But it's also just generally the landscape is changing to such a degree that the moose are adjusting and 
and we have to, whether we like it or not, adjust our hunting pressure on them uh, in order to prevent them to, from further declining in the face of things like climate change and, and changing parasites. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was re really interesting how the government had initially put that proposal forward to liberalize wolf and coyote hunting in the north because they said they said outright that the science, first of all, doesn't support any kind of like increases in, in hunting and trapping predators, that it will lead to increases in their prey, such as moose. Um, and they also said that they're really just addressing the concerns of moose hunters. So obviously hunters are concerned that they're competing with wolves for moose. Um, but there's actually no no science backing up the fact that killing more wolves or allowing hunters to kill more wolves uh, would do anything to benefit the moose population or increase it whatsoever. Well, and it's funny because that's the, the basis of game management from 300, 400, 500 years ago uh, from Europe to yeah. modern North America um, was this, this idea that we need to protect our game, what we choose to hunt from predators um, and additionally the livestock issue. Um, but mm -hmm. science has really just sort of leaped past that. But it's still it's, it's interesting how it still continues to come up in policy, policy discussion, even though it's, it's very solidly debunked. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of inertia around these old ideas, and it's often based on prejudice towards predators, uh, that we just, we didn't value them as important parts of the ecosystem. And so we have a hard time really coming to grips with the reality that the science is showing us that they are important and the ways that we thought we were managing them and managing their prey turns out to be a little bit counterintuitive at times. Same goes for livestock. And because that research is so new and because the prejudice is so old, we're at this sort of crossroads with how we're going to change our management and our ideology behind management in order to to make our ecosystems and our, our livelihoods more resilient to this upcoming change. And that's something I want to talk about in just a few minutes, uh, this, this change and the updates in science. But before we get to that, um, sort of on the heels of the decision uh, to not liberalize the hunting of coyotes and wolves in northern Ontario, uh, the proposals came out regarding limiting the hunting of wolves and coyotes in what I, I guess you would consider central Ontario, specifically because of the results of this, this ultimate decision on the status and taxonomy of the Algonquin wolf. Uh, so what happened there? Why, what was the idea put forward by the government and what was... Uh, your view on the matter. Okay, yeah. So f fast forwarding to sort of the central Ontario um, part, which is where Algonquin wolves are primarily found. Uh, so what they had proposed to do in reaction to the uplisting of the species to a threatened and unique species was to close wolf and coy coyote hunting in three areas, um, in addition to where it's already been closed around Algonquin Park since 2001. And so these three new areas are something that they term core occurrence areas. Um, and essentially that just means that out of all the surveys that we've done in Ontario to try and locate Algonquin wolves, most of them are found around these three additional provincial parks. And those are Killarney, Queen Elizabeth II Wildlands, and uh, Kawartha Highlands Signature Site. So sort of spread to the south and, and to the west of Algonquin Park. Um, but the problem with that is, is that in order to make that legal, what they actually had to do was go into our Endangered Species Act, where the animals are now listed as threatened, and 
and punch a hole in these provisions that sort of make the Endangered Species Act effective. And those provisions prevent people from killing, harming, and harassing threatened or endangered species because they are facing the highest risk of extinction. And so uh, they're going to protect wolves and coyotes in these three new areas, but everywhere else, hunters and trappers are now allowed to kill both Algonquin wolves and continue to allow to kill coyotes. So while it seems like they're gaining um, sort of more real-world protection around these three provincial parks, they're actually being stripped of the protection that was afforded to them as soon as they were listed as threatened in June. Um, and that was part of the reason that was such a contentious issue is because even though that protection was supposed to be province-wide as of June, we were still allowed to kill coyotes. And if you're allowed to kill coyotes and you cannot tell an Eastern or an Algonquin wolf from a coyote, then you may be killing the wolves as well. And so in, in, the, in the answer to that and to, to alleviate confusion, as they call it, uh, they're keeping the season open in most areas and closing it only in these three new buffer zones around the provincial parks. Well, and again, one of the big problems with the buffer zones um, is the connectivity, as I recall. Yeah. Um, so how do we how do we express the issue of connectivity? I mean, it's it, it's one of these things I've been hearing about for years and years and years just in terms of um, municipal planning for ravines and stuff and forest lots. Um, but it obviously plays into uh, large wildlife as well. So how do we express that in a verbal way? Um, and, and again, when you see it on a map, I think it's it's very obvious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so how do we go about sort of explaining how that works? So if you if anyone was to look at a map or even visualize sort of where Algonquin Park is in Ontario, it's sort of like smack dab in the middle uh, of central Ontario, leaning towards Quebec. And it's a pretty big island of protection, I'll call it, because the park itself is quite big and uh, you cannot kill wolves or coyotes in any of the 42 townships surrounding the park. So it almost doubled the size of protection. Um, and compared to these three new areas, it's actually very, very big. So around Killarney is a, Killarney is a fair sized park, but it borders on Georgian Bay. Um, and so there's obviously a barrier there where the wolves are sort of limited to going north or east or west. Um, and then there are two much smaller islands of protection around these provincial parks, which are Queen Elizabeth's Two Wildlands and Kawartha Highlands. And they're sort of south, southeast of Algonquin. The problem being there that um, none uh, there there's one of these three new areas that's directly connected to the protection in Algonquin. And that's great. But that protection is a pretty narrow area. It's sort of two townships wide. And so when you're considering connectivity and an animal, what you have to look at is the biology of the animal and how it travels. So we know that hunting and trapping is the primary threat to the animals because uh, when they leave areas of protection, they tend not to survive, establish, and, and have their own wolf families and sort of recover to be able to recover the population. So if these wolves are wide ranging and dispersing outside of these protected areas, once they're saturated with wolves, they're looking for new territories, new mates, they leave that area, but they're not walking in a straight line distance. And wolves travel, uh, I think the minimum straight line distance from where they start and where they end up uh, is at least 23 kilometers on average. And often wolves are documented traveling multiple hundreds of kilometers in any given season. And so what we don't know is how they're going to be able to move from these new closure areas um, between Algonquin Park and other areas. And to me, the main concern is uh, once they leave those areas of protection, even though there are four now, and so there used to just be really the one in Algonquin, 
they don't have anywhere to land. So they either have to aim for another protected area, which obviously they can't do because they don't know in advance where that is, or they have to find themselves somewhere where there's lots of prey and almost no people in roads because people in roads is really what leads to their death. So I don't know how really they're going to do that unless they, they knew where these protected areas were. Uh, and that, of course, is, is not part of their knowledge base. Well, and that's something I recall reading, that um, there is science that shows uh, once these wolves or really any animal leaves its protected zone, there is a very high rate of mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't, they don't seem to be very well adapted to living near people. Um, compared to coyotes, they, they are more prone to being killed by hunters and trappers. And even though... Uh, there are lots of coyotes on the landscape, so you know their survival is pretty high, and they're doing pretty well. The the Algonquin wolf is so rare that if uh, mortality is high outside of these protected areas, then the chance of them being able to find one of their own kind and raise a family and stay alive and keep their pups alive is so low that uh, these little islands of protection become really just islands of extinction where they're sort of. Um, like what we call metapopulation dynamics. So a bunch of different separate populations and interacting with each other, but none of them having really that great probability of surviving. But you constantly need a source of new individuals to come into an area to keep that area populated because once they get there, they get killed. Yeah, and it's um, it's the decision that was made eventually, which is... Um, Interesting to me, trying to look at it from something of an outside opinion, um, even though I have my obvious biases, um, no one is particularly happy with what the ultimate decision through this process was. Um, And one of the things I want to do with you is try and untangle some of the things that have been said. Um, Now, some of our listeners don't, as many of them don't. There is a group called the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters in Ontario. They are a very powerful hunting group and uh, fishing group, and uh, I believe they also encompass some trapping. But they they have a large membership base and are very influential in policy creation. Um, And and, um, one of the things I find... Sadly amusing is that they seem personally offended when policy doesn't agree with what they said. And there's a quote, you know, it's, um, they weren't listening to what we told them at our meeting. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure they did listen. They just probably didn't agree. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that frequently comes up is they say that they are, and, and this, I struggle with this. So this is from a press release, um, Same story, different species. Once again, the government of Ontario has let emotion trump sound science when it comes to wildlife management as they move ahead with a ban on wolf and coyote hunting and trapping in many areas across the province. So we've already discussed why that's just not really true. Um, There's, you know, yes, there is prohibitions in some areas, but not significant amounts of areas or new significant amounts of areas, but they also say that emotion trumped sound science. It sounds to me like sound science was really not that involved in this decision at all. No, I think uh, we have what we call science-informed policymaking, but it's certainly not science-based policymaking. And uh, what confuses me about their attitude is that they seem to have um, 
a disregard about all of the research that's been going on for roughly a decade around Algonquin Provincial Park. Most of that wolf research uh, run by ministry staff, like government staff. And so uh, the conclusions coming from that research were that hunting and trapping is, is responsible for the majority of the mortality of these wolves. But once protection is in place, the wolves return to their normal uh, sort of social dynamics and, and structure, pack structures, becomes family-based, and the natural processes that are inherent to intact predator-prey population cycling um, are sort of renewed, and, and it doesn't take long. They, they started to notice this within a few years of putting the ban around Algonquin Park. Um, the only thing maybe that would confuse people is that um, – you would think that in, in a park and you put a buffer of protection around it, maybe people would have expected that the wolf population would have gone up after the protection was uh, enforced. And when it didn't, the biologists had to look at like, okay, so, you know, we kind of expected maybe that there'd be more wolves here if they were protected. So why aren't there? Um, especially if wolf survival seems to have increased. And what they have determined is that as soon as the wolves are born and leaving their natal packs, they disperse outside of that area of protection and then they're killed. Um, so they can't establish outward. They can't really push too, too far beyond that buffer zone. So while the actual population inside those areas may be already at its maximum, um, it's, it's, it has a, I think what we need to concentrate on here is that protection from hunting and trapping is really the only way that we can return these animals to any kind of uh, natural process that would allow them to uh, go by their, you know, um, dispersing normal behaviors and, and territory taking up uh, in order to recover beyond the park. Because recovery of the species, such a small number of animals in such a, uh, a built up place like Ontario, we need a lot of habitat for them. To, to get a population bigger than roughly 500 animals. Um, I think they estimate that there's about 150 mature individuals, um, and those are the ones that would be able to reproduce. So we, we clearly need um, the same density of wolves in a bigger stretch of Ontario, and I don't think that's going to happen if they're going to limit protection to just three additional spaces where they probably have already reached saturation of the, the wolf densities there. Yeah, and it's um, I, I I read this, and as an avid reader, as someone whose background is in news, I I I can't form sentences anymore. Um, trying to come up with intelligent questions. So the the <laughs> they talk about how emotion trumps science, though their science is outdated, and the ministry didn't really use the science they had. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that science wasn't used at all, but that the emotion that they're referring to is, um, is sort of from the, uh, the conservation preservation side. Um, so they call themselves conservationists, but, uh, their idea of conservation is like sustainable yield. So being able to kill at least as many animals in the future as they do currently, uh, and our idea of conservation generally is preservation of natural processes and biodiversity um, and ecosystems having inherent value and also ecosystem services that we benefit from as species. Um, so the two different ideas of conservation there. And I think that they're, what they're pointing to in the emotion is that um, it's the emotion behind uh, the inherent value of animals and that they should be protected. Uh, and that like dominance of the human species 
should not really be what is driving management of other species uh, <laughs> when when we seem to be doing harm to the ecosystems that we rely on ourselves. So I think that's what they mean by emotion, but I'm not too sure why they think that uh, that trumped science because we were like the the emotional side of our argument is based on science. Yeah. Uh, and and so I'm a little bit confused by that statement, well, but it seems to also be generally what they say when things don't go their exactly. way. Exactly. So. It's it's their fallback argument, but what I find and, and this is the part that makes a wire in my brain just sort of snap apart and you know, Pinky and the Brain theme song come on re- uh, repeat up there is they talk about how emotion overtook this process and that's wrong that should be science. And then the the release further states, um, as we prepare to celebrate fishing, hunting, and trapping activities this weekend, this is obviously from September, uh, this decision serves as a reminder that the outdoors community must remain strongly committed to protecting our traditions. So they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And from a simple review of the information in front of us, it seems they're wrong while speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Um, so how do we, is uh, when we, I'm not interested in trying to convince OFA members. I'm not interested in necessarily trying to educate OFA members because the leadership of this organization has made it very clear what their goals are. Um, and that is to continue to hunt uh, regardless. I mean, like you said, the moose numbers are going down. So their solution is to kill wolves, even though the problem has nothing to do with wolves. Um, how do we talk to the people though, who read this? And again, I look, I'm reading out of the Manitoulin press right now, um, which or sorry, the Manitoulin expositor, which has, I estimate around a thousand word article on OFA's opinion of this decision. Uh, with absolutely no input from anyone else, no statements from the ministry, nothing from Earthroots, etc. So when we see that kind of obvious bias taking place, how do we communicate with the public that they can say they want science-based policy, but what they're projecting isn't science-based policy? It's it's um, it really it's greed. It's it's we want what we want, and we will form an opinion to support that based on any evidence, regardless of how old, outdated, or, or falsified it may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, that's sort of a constant struggle. Uh, I left research. I used to be an active wildlife biologist, and I left that work because I saw that uh, the public doesn't have a lot of access or understanding of the science. And so what's the point of doing the science if no one knows it's out there and no one's using it to sort of generate political will and and get decision makers to make science-based decisions. Um, And so what I try to do now at Earthroots is make the science accessible, make it understandable. And uh, and if that means drawing maps for people or helping them understand how animals are moving, how many animals there are, uh, what do intact versus destroyed ecosystems look like, and how does this affect us, I think is the key point because people really need to understand where they fit into the equation. Uh, And often there is a lot of fear mongering and sensationalism coming from special interest groups that um, benefit economically from, from slaughtering animals like OFA and, uh, and the trappers. Um, And so what I want to do is help people see the science for what it is uh, and, and see that, 
we as a species are benefiting from having these intact ecosystems as much as the wolves are. And so I think when you when you show them that and you show them maps of how these animals move and you show them the behavior of the animals and you show them pictures of the animals and, and how they interact with each other and how they affect other species, it's sort of uh, you you end up seeing this intricate web of nature and how we fit into it and how we appreciate it and how we can steward it in a way that we don't actually have to put our hands in and manage the way we think we do. And that stewardship is maybe sitting back and, and letting nature take its course uh, and reacting accordingly as a part of that intricate web instead of sitting on the top and trying to direct things and usually misdirecting things. So I think um, it's really just getting the research articles into the hands of the public, but not making them fit through reading methods sections and, and statistical analyses, just showing them what are the conclusions and uh, and what can you do about it? How can you take part in decision-making? And in Ontario, we have the Environmental Bill of Rights that affords us uh, rights to participate in decision-making. And I want to show people that I can provide them with the science if that's what they're interested in. And if they have um, you know, a predilection for wanting animals to be protected, well, then they can use the science to forward that value system that they have. Because there's no denying that the value systems uh, between between the different versions of conservationists, I guess I should call it verse, uh, sort of like consumptive and non-consumptive users, uh, it's, it is value-based. And so when people see that the science is behind what we are saying, I think that they're more apt to get involved. And the more people that get involved, the more that the government will listen to the science. So that's my hope. To learn more about Hannah's work or what EarthRoots is up to, visit them at earthroots.org. That's it for now, folks. Thanks for joining us and for sticking with the science in your advocacy. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.